to the center. I just mentioned to you again, we have some copies still of He Touched Me. If you didn't get one yesterday and you'd like one, we'd had, have some with us. The, uh, the price for the conference is $10. If you're running a little short, we understand completely. Some have given a little extra. So uh, please don't uh, leave without getting a, a copy if you'll read it and use it to share with others. The message last night is also in that book as far as the outline form of the Lord touching the widow's son who had died and made him alive by his powerful life and resurrection power. Now, this morning, listening to Brother Mike, I certainly was uh, thrilled in my heart because the two themes that he touched are the two themes that also Nehemiah chapter 3 on the next two gates are going to bring before us. The one has to do with humility, the valley gate, and conviction. The second one, the refuse or the dung gate, has to do with confessing and seeing God's power to overcome sin in our life. And so we're going to look at those two gates today. Nehemiah chapter 3, you'll see them in verses 13 and 14. Before I read in Nehemiah 3, 13, I just remind you we have seen the sheep gate. It reminds us of the importance of salvation. And we rejoice in the salvation of those last night who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They entered the sheep gate. And now they're also entering the fish gate because they're telling others of what God has done in their lives, just as we should all be a witness of God's saving power in our lives. Thirdly, we looked at the old gate, and that's building the foundation, going back to the truths of the Word of God, that while they're never changing, they're also ever new and fresh, not old and dilapidated, but the eternal Word of God that never changes. It's a good, solid foundation, the old gate. Now we come to Nehemiah chapter 3, and verse 13 says, Nehemiah 3.13 says, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits as far as the refuse gate. Which verse 14 goes on to explain that Malchijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hasserim, repaired the refuse gate and built it, and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And we trust that the Lord will lead us through these two gates and take the things we've read and the things we've already heard and what we'll look at and make them a real blessing to our hearts this morning. Let's pray once more. Our Father, as we bow before your presence once again this morning, we pray that you will guide us into all truth. Take us through the gates of our lives that we might leave differently than when we arrived. And Lord, that anything that we have brought as baggage that would hold us back, help us to be able to leave it at the feet of the Lord Jesus Cross, Christ, where on the cross he paid for all our sins, that we might not suffer for sins because he has suffered for our sins. And we give you our thanks for such grand forgiveness from the multitude, by the magnitude of your divine forgiveness, found solely in the person of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, the Valley Gate. Here we are in Yosemite's Grand Valley. And I found that as we were driving in over all the mountains and the curves, Nancy would say, look at that. And then she would say, no, don't look. <laughs> Holding in the driver's wheel, you want to keep your eye on the road. But as we finally got up to 6,000 feet, you know, you know the idiom, don't you? The idiomatic saying, what goes up must come down. And we started descending until finally we got down to the Yosemite Valley. 4,000 feet elevation. That's, most, that's higher than most places over in the southeast where we come from. But yet you're in the valley. And I find that from Yosemite Valley, you can truly appreciate the magnitude of the mountains around us. But sometimes the mountains become overwhelming. And we feel like the psalmist that says, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. But from down in the valley, we learn lessons that we can't learn from the mountaintops. Now, I don't know about you, but every conference I'm part of, about this time on Wednesday, it is Wednesday, isn't it? About this time on Wednesday, I'm realizing we're halfway there. And I start, I start feeling like I'm, I'm putting all fours ahead of me on this downward slope that soon we'll have to come down from the mountain, even though we're, lay, we're living in the valley, I know, but we're going to have to come down from the mountaintop of a Bible conference and we get down to the valley. That what does go up does have to come down. But there are lessons that we learn in the valley that we won't learn anywhere else. We find out that God, as the Syrians needed to learn, and as God taught, taught them the lesson that they need to know that God is not just the God of the hills, of the mountains, but he's also the God of the valleys as well. That when he leads us down through the valley of the shadow of death, we learn lessons here we can't learn anywhere else. And the lesson that we need early on in the Christian life, having gone through the sheep gate, having gone through the fish gate, having gone through the old gate, is a gate that if we had our druthers, we would just pass this one by. But there's no shortcut for learning the important valley lessons. And if I could put one word on it, it would be the lesson of humility. It's amazing how the Lord is weaving this little tapestry together through the messages, through the testimony that Justin gave last night, through the excellent ministry that we're enjoying from our brother Mike Atwood, of humility. Warren Wiersbe said, I don't know if it was original, but he said, humility is that rare quality that once you realize you have it, you lose it. I mean, those are not easy lessons. They're lessons that we wouldn't take a million dollars for. But you couldn't pay me a million dollars to go through them again. They're lessons that there's no shortcut for. To be humbled is a difficult lesson, and it's one that we find we have to visit and be revisited by again and again and again. The humility of Christ is the real thing. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek humble in heart. Now that's true humility. False humility is where, where we're humble and have a false humility of face. 
as a humble, humble man. It's not the real thing at all. It's a false humility. We must genuinely humble ourselves before and beneath the mighty hand of God, that in due time He will exalt us. When the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It was reflective back on King Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, who divided the kingdom after Solomon's glory days by taking the yoke of his government and making it a heavy yoke upon the people. When Rehoboam took over the kingdom, according to First Kings chapter 12, please, if you take some time this afternoon to read it, you'll never forget it. Because the people came to King Rehoboam and they said, Your father made the yoke heavy on us. You make it lighter, be a servant to the people, and we'll serve you. I mean, this is so important to catch for the comparison to what the Lord Jesus said, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But King Rehoboam, he went and took advice from the young men and from the old men. And the young men said, don't you make that yoke light. You make that yoke heavy. The older men said, you should listen to the people and make the yoke light and make yourself a servant and they'll serve you. But he listened to the young men. He went back to the people and he said, my father chastised you with whips. I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. My little finger is going to be heavier than my father's loins. I'm going to make the yoke heavy. And they rebelled against him, and the kingdom was split from that very moment all the way from there on out. The kingdom that one time was glorious was now split and destroyed because of the oppressive nature of a king who did not have a light yoke. But the Lord Jesus steps onto the scene and he said, listen, you come to me. I'll make the yoke light for my yoke is light. It means pleasant and my burden. My yoke is easy or pleasant and my burden is light. You'll find rest unto your souls. Who would not want to serve a humble king who became a servant? the servant king like no other king we've ever seen in this earthly scene. Now that's true humility because he was humble of heart. So how do we get this humility? Again, there's no shortcut to it. It comes only by the trials and the lessons that we learn where? At the valley gate, going through the low places of life. How low can you go? <laughs> Brother Bramhall, who was like a father to us in the Lord, used to quote a little phrase comparing the Lord Jesus to us. And he said, Wouldest thou be chief? Then lowly serve. Wouldest thou go up? Then go down. But go as low as you will. The highest has been lower still. The Lord Jesus came and he showed us what true servanthood and humble service really looked like. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. When he met with his own on the night that he was betrayed, you remember the scene in the upper room? 
They all sat or reclined at the table, but there was a problem. No one was there to wash the feet of the disciples. The Lord Jesus got up from the table, set aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, poured water into a basin, and he knelt down and began to wash the disciples' feet. I wonder why they didn't think about it. I have a feeling they did think about it. In fact, it started an argument. And the argument, the Gospels tell us, was over who was the greatest. <laughs> I don't know if it worked out this way, but I have a feeling Simon Peter said, Andrew, <laughs> you forgot to hire the servant to wash our feet. Why don't you do it? Andrew said, nothing doing. I'm the one that told you about Messiah. And so Andrew said, Bartholomew, come on, get some water and wash our feet. And Bar Bartholomew said, nothing doing. I got the longest name of all the disciples. What was it? They were arguing about it. Who was the greatest? And the Lord Jesus. He showed true greatness, didn't he? He said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to learn to be the servant of all. Now, I used to have a little saying that I got corrected on by Brother Boyd Nicholson. And I'm so glad it was corrected because it opened my eyes and opened my heart. I used to say, you know, you're a servant when people treat you like one. Brother Boyd said, that's not exactly true. He said, you know you're a servant by how you respond when people treat you like one. Now, I tell you what, I had false humility. But I got a good lesson on the real thing. And you that know Brother Boyd Nicholson's ministry, you know that's the real thing. He told me one time at a, at a prayer meeting, someone got, I'm going to say, carried away in their prayer. Is that possible? Here's what he said. A younger man said, oh, God, humble us. Humble me, Lord, he said. Brother Boyd said uh, an older, wiser brother further down the road of faith. He said, don't do it, Lord. Let him humble himself. I'll tell you what, it's much better to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God. Than for the Lord to have to humble us. The Apostle Paul was concerned about it. He spoke and he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, please make whatever divisions are among you right before I come, lest I be humbled in your presence. And how, how we have to realize the valley experiences are so necessary for us to learn the humility of Christ. Now, there's no shortcut. I, I want you to turn in your Bible to uh, first, first Peter chapter 1, I believe. First Peter chapter 1. In First Peter chapter 1, the valley experiences are expressed by Peter. Also James, but let's look at Peter. There are a couple of reasons for valley experiences. Peter tells us the first and most important reason, and that is that it's going to work in our lives. We will not grow without trials. What do they say when you're when you're working out? Pain is what? No pain. Oh, you are really alert this morning, aren't you? You're doing well. My cousin, he put together this great uh, fundraiser marathon, and it was called the No Show Marathon. It's the only marathon I ever signed up for. 
Now, my daughters run the marathon, 40 kilometers, 26 miles. We cheered her all the way. And I said, I'm going to run a marathon. And it was the no-show marathon. All you had to do is send them $5 to give you a T-shirt. Okay? And it says, I participated in the no-show marathon. Only cost you $5. You get a T-shirt for $5. That's not too bad. You can say, oh, yeah, I remember the marathon I didn't do. And, uh, but no pain. All I got was a lousy T-shirt. And if it's a $5 T-shirt plus the fundraiser, that's not much, is it? Now, if there's no pain and there's no gain, the only way to get gain is to get it by pain. That's easy, all right? Here's what Peter described it as in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look, if you will, in verse 6. But you know how it is? It's sometimes difficult to start at verse 6. I just have to remind you that Peter has just described the blessedness of God the Father and the treasure of this new hope that we have that is a living hope through the resurrection, also of the inheritance that we have that's reserved in heaven for you. And then he goes into verse 6 saying, in this you greatly rejoice. And it would be great if we could say, now there's a good place for an exclamation point. End of story. It's not the end of the story. In this you greatly rejoice, First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, though now for a little while. That's the valley experience. If need be, and I, <laughs> I wonder when he wrote that, because I need it. And you need it. And you can't get by without it. If need be, and I'll just change that word, because this is necessary, that you have been grieved by various trials. These are serious things, aren't they? There is no shortcut. That God would put us to grief? Does that seem right? Oh, of course it's right. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? You can't have glory without suffering. As the way the master went, so we also must tread. That if he enters into his glory through suffering, do you think we're going to get out of this life without suffering? I'd like to remind my own heart, you know, we're not going to get out of this life alive. <laughs> None of us. Except the Lord become before we pass through the valley of the shadow. But we're not going to get out of the Christian life experience without trials. Notice what he goes on to say. You have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. Though it be tested by fire. May be found to. Now look at this. Praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Turn again in 1 Peter to chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. These trials that come don't come for our undoing, even though they grieve us. It comes for the purification of our faith, that it might go through the fire and come out more pure, to the praise, honor, and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, now I'm glad he starts with this word, aren't you? 
Beloved, if he loves you, it's going to hurt. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Listen, as a Christian, as a new Christian, do not be surprised when you go through trials. When you get home from Yosemite on Monday morning, don't you think it's going to be a wonderful, fun-filled week of fellowship with other believers? You're welcome back to the reality of life. You're going to, you, I bet you'll hit it before you even get home to your house. Hmm? The water pipes are going to be burst. That happened to me one time after a conference. <laughs> the house is going to be flooded. Fiery trials everywhere. Problems in personal relationships. The dog has fleas. You name it. It's amazing the trials that are going to be waiting for you. Satan hasn't missed any of these meetings so far. And whenever you get serious and draw nigh to God, we heard it this morning. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And he's waiting just to try you. Now, the great thing about it is who's in charge over him? <laughs> nothing can happen into our life. Nothing can come unless it first passes through the fingers of our loving Heavenly Father. Every joy or trial that falleth from above is traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We must trust him fully. All for us to do those who trust him wholly find him wholly true. You can trust him with this. And so he goes on to say, don't think something strange has happened to you. But, verse 13 goes on to say, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Hmm. Well, there's two verses from Peter. The trials that'll try you, they come for a reason, to purify your faith. Don't think it's something strange happening. Now, the world thinks it's strange that you don't walk with them and run with them to the excess that you used to. They think you're really strange. But don't you think it's strange when they turn against you and try you? This is all part of the normal Christian life. Now, you know, we didn't tell you new believers that trusted the Lord last night, watch out for today. <laughs> Sorry to give you the fine print after you got saved. <laughs> I just got to tell you, even if you didn't get saved, there are troubles and trials in this world. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. If you try to go through the trials of life because man is born unto troubles, as sure as the sparks fly upward, said Job, just in our human experience, there are troubles innumerable. And if you try to make those without the Savior, you can't make it. It'll overwhelm you. But if you know the Lord, you can get through the trials with a joy in your heart and a peace in your soul that even if the worst thing happened, it'd be the best thing. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? I, I can die and go to heaven. That's the worst thing that can happen to me. That's not too bad, is it? I got home from Africa and I'd learned all these experiences in Africa. And I went to hear someone speak and he told me something that happened in Africa that I'd never seen or heard, but it's so appropriate. He told the story about a tourist who was walking through Africa. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I, I went as a missionary. I can't imagine going as a tourist through Africa. 
Walking through Africa on some of the trails through the jungle, he noticed that at a river the bridge had been washed away by some heavy rains in the rainforest. I'd seen it plenty of times. But the ladies who were on their way to the market, carrying heavy loads, had to wade down through the river, running along, just like as we see here in Yosemite, with these heavy loads. Now, I've weighed some of the heavy loads that the ladies carry on their heads. <laughs> Perfect balance is amazing. And even strapped. One time we bought rice from a lady who brought it from Akakora, and she had strapped to her forehead 65 pounds of rice on her back. And up on top of her head, she had about 60 pounds of rice. We bought both, lo both loads, 135 or 125 pounds of rice carrying it. Her husband was along with her. He was counting the money on the way back. <laughs> Wouldn't lift a finger to help her. So this tourist, he saw all these ladies carrying their heavy loads, wading down into the waters of the fast-flowing currents of the river. And you know what he said? He said, let me help you with that load. And this woman, she's, no way. You can't help me with this load. If I go down into this river without a load on me and this burden, it'll sweep me away. I got to tell you, the burdens that God puts on you are measured out perfectly. You're down in the valley. You think, I can't get any lower than this. And then all of a sudden, a burden comes. A heartache. A sorrow. A weight that you think, is it really true that He won't put more on me than what I can handle? His grace comes right along. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more help when the labors increase, sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied troubles, his multiplied peace. Listen, his love has no measure. His grace has no, what is it, limit. His love has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth. And giveth again. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources. When our strength is failed ere the day is half done. When we reach the end of our. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm missing the words. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources. Our father's full mercy. Full giving has only begun. Think of it. There's nothing that is in your life right now. That the Lord doesn't have a reason for. And what is the reason? The reason is to strengthen you, not to undo you. Not to make a stumbling block, but rather a stepping stone that brings you closer to the Lord. Let it have its perfect result. That's what James says. My brethren, James 1, 3, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let patience or perseverance have its perfect work and result. In other words, a faith that can't be tested, C.H. Spurgeon said, a faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. And there's no way to get this experience except down through the valley. Now, I want to tell you, from the valley perspective, it doesn't look good. 
But that's because we're seeing from down here. Uh, I don't know which mountain I'm looking at, by the way. I mean, I hear about Half Dome and I hear about Glacier Point and all these other. And every time I look up, I see a mountain no matter where I'm looking from. Sometimes you feel surrounded, don't you? And you think, is anyone else going through this? You're not alone in this. It's part of the valley experience. You've got to go through the valley gate. Since I've messed up all the other quotes, I'm going to try one more. <laughs> Look them up. They're a blessing. Let me try one more. Because years ago, Nancy used to cross-stitch. You know, we would travel a good bit, sometimes 40,000, 50,000 miles in a year when we would travel around full-time. That's a lot of miles. And so she started cross-stitching. All of a sudden, my world got quiet because she's counting the stitch. Doing some wonderful cross-stitch, nice tapestry kind of looking things. And my job, after she finished it, was to put it onto a frame. And I'd have to work from the backside of that thing, and I'd think, boy, this is a mess back here. And that's exactly what this poem I'm going to try to mess up for you is going to picture, because from the valley perspective, we're seeing the underside of what God's doing. And that's what the little poem, The Weaver, is all about. Now, rest assured, even if I mess up, I do have it written in my Bible. If I mess up, I promise I'll run over there and open the back of my Bible and get it right. But here's the way it goes. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper while I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. We made it. But think about it. When we're in the valley, we think, what a mess. What else can happen? And then you realize God has put this on us to hold us in place. If it weren't, wasn't for this burden, we'd be swept away by the torn of the world. But because of the very weight, we think if we can just get out under this weight, don't, don't fool yourself. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that'll try you. And if you're really going through some really heavy trials, just know this. God has a wonderful plan. Romans 8.28 is still in the book. All things do work together for good. He's going to cause them to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, he has a plan for it, and he's going to turn it all one day into glory. You don't believe me, do you? But I know you believe the word of God and we've claimed the promises. We know they're in the book and he's going to do it. But, you know, the trials come for one of two reasons and they work both together. Sometimes the trials come just to make us strong. But sometimes the trials come to make us examine ourselves. Now, anytime you do both, you're on good ground because that's the balance. If there's sin in my life. It produces trials because I can't handle the trials that are there automatically. That's the problem. When I break fellowship with the Lord because of sin, 
the trials that are come upon me naturally and the trials that are superimposed on my life by the Lord to get my attention, they make me examine myself. And that takes us to the next gate. It's the refuse gate. Right there in verse 14 that we read. Right to the refuse gate. It's the dung gate. It's actually the garbage dump. That's where you open the gate and throw out the garbage. I don't like these garbage cans here. Do you? Man, I mean, it takes two hands to empty the garbage. I like it where you can just spin the bag and let her rip. Hmm? But you got to unclip it. Then it's on a cable. If you don't smash your fingers the first try, you are an amazing person. And you open the gate, and, you know, usually it's in the middle of the night, right when I'm just falling to sleep, I hear someone go, <laughs> boom! Huh? And you think, well, there went another bag of garbage. Thank the Lord the bears can't get into it. We're saving a bear, but we're wasting our garbage bags. Ah, oh, what a life, huh? The refuse gate, the dung gate, nothing like old English, huh? That's where you get rid of the stinking, smelling garbage of our life. In the New Testament, here is the refuse gate, the dung gate. When the garbage has built up in your life and you say, I got to clean some things out here. The trials of the valley gate make me examine myself. And when I examine myself and I ask the Lord, as the psalmist did in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any way of pain in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I recognize there's sin in my life. What do I do with it? Now, my sins are all paid for. I'm on my way to heaven. I'll never see my sins again. They're separated from me, cast as far as the east is from the west, cast into the deepest sea. And someone said, God put a sign there saying no fishing. They're all gone. My sins are all gone. My sin, all oh, the bless of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole are nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And yet I still sin. If anyone sins, first John tells us we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what do we do with our sins? Turn to first John chapter one, please. First John chapter one. We're going to start in verse seven. But we're going for verse nine. Verse nine is definitely the refuse gate of the New Testament. But in first John chapter one, verse seven, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. They've all been paid for. Now, verse eight says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So before you say, you know, I looked at my life and everything's good. I'm grabbing my wallet. And I'm getting out of the way. Because there's no one that doesn't sin continually. We all fight it daily, moment by moment. When we do sin, first John one nine says, if we confess and I just want to mention to you that word is this. It's a compound word, but the message and the definition of confess is as simple as simple can get. A compound word, meaning that it's made up of two words together. Confess. Homo legeo, meaning 
to say or to use the same words. In other words, to call sin, sin. Not to say, Lord, I had a little shortcoming here. I've made a little (laughs) boo-boo. I've made a mistake here. No, no, no. Call sin what it is. If we acknowledge our sin, confess it, that's not, that's not a process. That's getting to the point. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And notice this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess the sins that we understand and acknowledge and even recognize, but that's just what we see. That's just the ones that we commit that we know about. How about to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not? To him it is sin. There are a lot of things that I don't do that are sin that I don't even know I didn't do. Did I say that right? I think I did. In other words, just what we confess is just what we know. We can't confess what we don't know. But God's remedy for our sin, when we confess it, he doesn't just stop with what we've confessed. With a heart that's right before God, broken and contrite, he doesn't despise that. As Brother Mike said, it's irresistible to him. He not only forgives and cleanses us from that sin, but he cleanses us from all sin. And you get a fresh new start. And you know what? Later today, when you confess again, you get a fresh new start. Tomorrow morning, you get a fresh new start. And it's ever fresh and ever beginning with him. It's the newness of life that we have. So the first thing we do at the refuse gate is confession. The second thing we find out at the refuse gate is that cleansing. Now, the Lord Jesus, in the cleanliness of his life, he's without spot and he's also without blemish. A blemish comes from within. A spot comes without. Did somebody say they're having spaghetti tonight? That's a good way to get a spot from without. If you're wearing a white shirt, you're sure to have spaghetti on it. Our sins, they not only come from without. <laughs> the Lord Jesus was spotless. We're spotted. Our sins also come from within. Not his. There was no sin in him. He was without blemish. Coming from within. And without spot. Coming from without. You and I, <laughs> we got sin within us. And we got sin without us. So we need a full cleansing from all sin that we might be without spot, tainted by the world, and blameless. I didn't say sinless, but even when we do the wrong thing, we can make it right by taking it to the Lord, confessing it, and enjoying the cleansing from it. Do you know you've been cleansed from your sins? Eternally, positionally, and day by day, practically, moment by moment. We're cleansed from the guilt of sin. We're also cleansed from the power of sin on an ongoing basis. The hymn Rock of Ages captures this double cleansing from within and from without by saying in the verse that is Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood From thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. You not only have confession of sin and cleansing from sin, but 1 John chapter 3, let me check the the scripture reference. 1 John chapter 3 verse 19 through 21 tells us this. 
that once you confess, I don't know if you're like I am, but even when I sin and confess my sin, you know, my heart doesn't want to let me forget it. And here's what 1 John three nineteen through 21 tells us, that we have confidence with God if our heart doesn't condemn us. But listen to this. Even if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. I mean, do you realize what that's saying? If he declares us cleansed from our sin and our sins. Who are we to say, yes, but, you know, I still feel guilty. Don't go by your feelings. Take it on the authority of God's word. Confession, cleansing, confidence. Another thing. Let me just take you. Let's go over to Second Corinthians, chapter 10, just for a moment. Second Corinthians, chapter 10. And verses 4 through 5. Now, on the way over there, I want to give you another verse. The verse I want to give you on the way over. We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The verses I want to give you on the way over is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer or present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I don't want to be conformed to this world any longer. When I sin, I want to be conformed not to this world. I want to be transformed to the, re- to the, the image of Christ by the renewing of our mind. Warren Wearsby said, are you a conformer or are you a transformer? Hmm? Think of it. When you get around the world, you know, a lot of Christians are like chameleons. They start matching the environment. That's why it's important. Bad company corrupts good morals. We need to be in fellowship around believers. I'm not saying we don't reach out to unbelievers in our world. Absolutely. But we don't fellowship with the world and the deeds of darkness because it does change us and makes us more like them. We want to be transformed. Some things you read, well, they'll inform you. Other things you read, they'll reform you. But only the word of God can conform and transform you to the image of Christ. When it comes to our sin, we confess it. We're cleansed from it. We have confidence with God because he's greater than our heart. We're conformed more to the image of Christ and not conform to this world. But here's the last thing. I want to come to a point to where we can be conquerors at the refuse gate. I don't want to just be at the garbage dump every moment of my life. I want to overcome sin by his power made perfect in my weakness. I know that's what you want too. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 and 5 tell us how to do it. It tells us that we war and in this battle... We can't use the weapons of our warfare that are carnal weapons, but we want to use weapons that are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is where Brother Mike finished up, and this is where I'm going to finish up. But here's a little progression. There's a three-generation picture of the flesh that the lust of the flesh conceives and gives birth to sin that's the second generation that's grandpa and the son and then when sin is conceived fully grown and matures it gives birth or brings about it bears forth death 
from lust to sin to death. I don't want to go that route. I want to stay away from that generation, all three of them. If I can catch the temptation in my mind, that's the first line of defense in the strategic, spiritual defense weapons. That's the, the first and the easiest place to defeat sin. You can't keep the birds from landing on your head, but you can keep the birds from building a nest in your hair. Temptations come to every one of us. We're always tested and tempted. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If it's in your mind, that's where you think about it. From your head, it goes right to your heart. And no longer it is a consideration of your head, but now it becomes a meditation of your heart. And it's harder to overcome sin when it goes from your thoughts down to your heart, from conversation to meditation. If you don't catch it in your heart, you know what happens? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It goes from consideration to meditation to conversation. And when you start talking about it, and making contact with people. It comes from conversation. Goes into a form of negotiation. You're almost there. You won't, you won't win that battle easily. Catch it at your mind. Because from negotiation. Then it comes from initiation. And lust brings forth sin. And sin brings forth death. And you realize as a believer... What am I doing here? How do I get out of this? Well, you go right back to the refuse gate <laughs> and you say, Lord, I've sinned. Confession. Take his cleansing. Keep that confidence that God has forgiven as he promised in his word. Say, I don't want to be conformed to this anymore. I want to learn the lessons and be transformed by the renewing of my mind that I might be on the victory side of sin that should no longer reign in these mortal bodies and now enjoy the conquering side over sin. It all happens at the refuse gate. One promise just to close. Romans eight thirty seven. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So whether it's the valley gate and all these gates almost happen simultaneously, don't they? the valley gate with all the heavy weights that are on us, the trials either brought about by sin or by life, they all come for the purpose to strengthen us and take us to the refuse gate to examine ourselves. And when we sin, cast that sin away from us and acknowledge that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Our Father, as we have been walking through the gates we say as the psalmist, our feet are standing within thy gates, O Jerusalem. And as you love the gates of Zion, we love them too, because they remind us of our relationship with you. Help us to live close to you, Lord Jesus, we pray, and be more conformed to your own blessed image. We ask it in your name, the name that is above every name, the name that is bigger than all of our trials, and the name that is like a strong tower that we can run into and be safe. For we pray in the name of you, Lord Jesus. Amen.